This event was recorded live at the 2012 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Yes, <laughs> a very warm welcome, a very warm welcome to the Edinburgh International Festival, to this event which is sponsored, thank you, to Bailey Gifford this morning. Um, I have two people on the stage who need very little introduction, but I'm going to do so anyway, because that was what I was asked to do. Maggie Ferguson, she's hot off a boat or a plane, I think, from Orkney, from a place she loves very much, and I'm very envious of her for that. She has written this biography of Michael, but you may well also know her for her biography of George Mackay Brown, which won many, many awards, an absolutely fascinating book. And if you've never been to Orkney, it brings alive the man and um, where he lived as well. I would thoroughly recommend it. Michael Mapurgo needs no introduction, and I could spend the next hour telling you what an incredible difference he's made to the world of children's books. He's made it a richer and a wiser and a more courageous place. But I'm not going to do that because this book tells you much more than I could possibly fit into an hour. Michael and Maggie are going to talk a little bit about Michael's life and go through various parts of the book. Um, and it tells you really of his life, and especially his life with Claire, his wife, over the last 50 years, who is not on this stage but is actually a star of the show as well. Um, Michael, I've said sat through many events with children's writers and I've introduced Michael on a number of occasions and normally my audiences are quite a lot younger than you are, I have to say. <laughs> so I'm not going to tell you to take your cardigans <coughs> off and sit still, um, but I will tell you to please uh, turn your mobile phones off. But Michael is, although he's talked to millions, I would imagine, of children over the years, he's not a writer who has revealed a huge amount about himself in that time. And although I have met him over the years many times, this book was so full of surprises, it was absolutely riveting. So I, and I'm sure you are, looking forward enormously to hearing from Michael and Maggie about the process of writing this book and um, then to answering some of your questions. So can I ask you again, please, to welcome Maggie Ferguson and Michael McCarthy. Thank you. And you can handle the questions Thank you very much, Lindsay. Well, I think we ought to start by explaining how this book came to be in the beginning. Um, a few years back, Michael was asked by his publishers whether he would think of writing a memoir. And I'm not sure, Michael, whether you ever even attempted to do that or whether you knew from the beginning that was something you couldn't manage. Um, I, I think I knew right away that it, I wasn't going to be able to do that. I mean, there are, there are many reasons for it, but amongst them would be that I have plundered my own life extensively for fiction to the extent that I'm not quite sure where the... <laughs> and although, yes, I'm glad you laughed, but it is, it is quite serious because when someone says write a memoir, I mean, really, I've fogged the whole thing so much with fiction that I, I'm not sure if what I remember is invented memory, told memory, or genuine memory. And it seemed to me that if we were going to do something like a memoir, it would be me going over old ground with my view of my life, which didn't seem to me to be particularly important, but that it would be better to have someone to shine a light from a different angle, um, I suppose, to get at, at truths, even if they were uncomfortable truths. Otherwise, sort of, what's the point of it? Um, which is why I rang you up. <laughs> and I rang you up because I had read, like many of you, I think, this extraordinary book that uh, Maggie had written on George McKay Brown, and I found it to be full of integrity, profoundly honest, fond, um, and the kind of biography where you learnt so much more about a man and, um, who is was deep, and you don't necessarily want to get under uh, or into the mind of someone like George McKay Brown because he was a very private man. And she didn't do that. She somehow managed to just shine a light and get us to think again about the man um, and his work. So I thought, what we'll do for him will do for me. <laughs> and I, of course, was deeply uh, flattered and excited. But I thought, while Michael's still alive, nobody's going to want a book about his life that just has my name on it. And so we came up with... a unusual kind of um, compromise or a new way of approaching biography whereby... I prefer a new way, Maggie, a not a compromise. Way, not a compromise, no, I think that's not quite right. A new way. Um, 
we agreed that I would write seven chapters about Michael's life, broadly chronological, not going into every twist and turn, but thematic, but, but chronological. And as they were written, I would send them to Michael, and he would think about the memories that they stirred up and the thoughts they brought up in him, and he would respond to each one with a story. So that's, that's the way, the slightly unusual way that this this book works. I think it's unique. I don't think it's slightly unusual. Let, let, let's, let's, let's blow a trumpet for it here. I mean, no, I think it was, a, it was actually it was an inspired idea of yours, Maggie. I think it's, what, it, what it did was to give a chance uh, to make of a biography is something that lifted itself off the page a little bit more. Um, and, and that's what happened. So we had our seven Shakespearean ages. We didn't quite get to sans teeth, sans eyes, sans everything, but we're on our way. Um, but we did have leave room for the story, so it was grand. And what was it like, Michael, having somebody come from the outside and prod around and find some sometimes uncomfortable things, some things you didn't know yourself about your own family and life? Well, it, was, um, it wasn't what I expected, that's for sure. I, I think I was expecting... Um, I think I was expecting probably we'd have some interviews where I would tell you what I thought, and you would interpret that and, and go away and make some investigations of your own. And then, um, but it wasn't like that. It, I found it, um, it was a bit like being on a psychiatrist's couch. I was talking, saying things that I hadn't said to anyone before quite quickly because I trusted Maggie very, very swiftly. And therefore the book uh, doesn't necessarily make for very comfortable reading because Maggie, I told you, was a person of great integrity, and she's not about to shy away from difficulty. And I was not happy to talk about difficulty, but I was happy to touch on difficulty and go there. Um, where I very often in my life hadn't been before, I, I come from a generation, I think, post-war, brought up not to talk about feelings, um, to keep things hidden quite a lot. I'm quite English and middle class in that respect. And this was an opportunity to break that down a bit. The only other chance I'd ever had to do that in my life, I think, was in the stories that I write. But in the stories, of course, they're one arm removed from you. You, you're, you're, you, can, you can hide in stories. Uh, and that's what I've been doing, I think, for many, many years. And this was an opportunity to, to speak from the heart and then have someone like yourself go out and investigate and see whether or not I had got it right. And many, many times, I had not got it right. Um, but that's the nature of family stories. I mean, Maggie went and discovered, can I tell, tell them a story about? I had two uncles, both extraordinary men. Um, one was my uncle Peter, who was shot down in the RAF, I thought, um, as a very young man of 21, the beginning of the Second World War. And another uncle um, called Francis, who was a pacifist at the beginning of that war, and only decided to join in the conflict when he heard of his brother Peter's death. And he went on to become an SOE agent in France, and rather extraordinary man he was and proved himself to be. Those two men very much influenced my life, the one who died and the one who went on and had this extraordinary wartime experience and then became a teacher and, and a lecturer and deeply connected with education. So they, they really affected me. It's a story of Peter um, because in my family uh, at home where there was a picture of my uncle Peter in his RAF uniform always on the top of the mantelpiece or... Yes, it was the mantelpiece. Um, the story had always been that um, my mother, who was very close to him, um, would tell me this story, quite often would tell it on Remembrance Sunday and things like that, about how he died. And the story I was told was that uh, his plane had been on a bombing mission across the Channel and that it had been shot up by anti-aircraft fire and that the pilot had been wounded. And my uncle was a sergeant navigator, I think, didn't know how to fly the aeroplane, but he tried to fly the aeroplane back, and he told the other airmen to bail out those who had survived so far, and tried to land the plane, and failed. And both the 
wounded pilot and himself had been killed. That's the story I'd heard. Maggie, why don't you tell them the story that you discovered and how? Well, I just went to check in the archives at Kew just to see whether there was any more memories from people on the ground about uh, Michael's uncle, Peter, who seemed to have been this great hero who'd saved a lot of people's lives by encouraging them to take their parachutes and get out of the plane in time while he crashed into flames and died. Uh, the truth, in fact, was much more prosaic, which was that the plane had been out on a fruitless bombing mission, had come back, overshot the runway, went up in flames, and everybody in the plane died. And so somehow, Michael's family, to, to ease their grief, I imagine, had created for themselves this, this story of heroism. And so there was a long silence when I told Michael the truth, because actually I think it had been very much a part of your imagination very much so, yeah. all your life. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it was, I went through it as a shock, but what it, what it does, did tell me, is that many of the stories, and I think it's the same with all of us, that we tell amongst ourselves and our family, very often they're handed down and handed down, and as they get, it is Chinese whispers, things, things grow and they develop, and they develop very often, don't they, in the way that we would like them to develop. So what I guess my mother um, wanted to do was to have some kind of justification in her head as to why this young man who she adored had, had died and just say he crashed in a plane. It certainly wasn't good enough. Too much of a waste, yes. But what impressed me very much from the beginning was that, I mean, sometimes, like with the story of Peter, I went out and found the truths for myself, but very often there were fascinating things uh, in letters and papers that Michael simply handed over to me without checking them first. Boxes and boxes of uh, letters, school reports, school magazines. Um, there was a correspondence between Michael's mother and stepfather at the point where Michael's mother's marriage to Michael's father was breaking down. Very, very painful. And it turned out, in fact, that Michael had never read this. So I was the first pe person to go through these, these letters and piece this story together. And then there was an enormous box of uh, love letters between Michael and his wife, Claire. Mostly, uh, mostly from Claire to me. <laughs> but Michael always points this out very, but I think you shouldn't be so proud of that, because I think what it means, I'm Michael, very proud is of that, that. I'm very proud. <laughs> I think it means that you kept Claire's letters and she threw yours away, and we don't really want to know why that was. Anyway. See why you don't want a biographer? Michael's, <laughs> Michael's letters to Claire were very few and far between, but Claire's letters to Michael, written every single day uh, through their courtship, were very, very moving. And one of them in particular had a wonderful phrase in it. She said, uh, Claire said to Michael, and they, were, they were just 18 years old, the two of you. Is that, that's right, when you'd... No, that's an exaggeration. That, I mean, I was, I was 18. You were 18 and Claire was 19. She was slightly that's... older, yeah. <laughs> but they will next year be celebrating their golden wedding, if anyone wants to calculate from that, how old they are now. Anyway, um, in one of them, uh, Claire says to Michael, I love you for your six selves. And what she, what she loved about Michael was that any time she thought she'd got to know him, another version of Michael kind of was presented to her. And I think this is very much something that's gone through your lives. There have been, you've done all sorts of different things and in each one been keen to wear a different sort of costume. You've always been very keen on the clothes that go with the roles yeah. you've played in different parts of your lives. And I wondered if we could trot quickly through those, some, sure. of, those, some of those selves, just to give people an idea of where, how you've got to be what you are now. I mean, I wondered if we could start with your childhood. You've written um, somewhere uh, that you write your books for the child inside yourself that you still partly are. And I wonder, can you describe for us what sort of a little boy you were at the age perhaps of seven or eight, very much not the confident, successful person we see now? Um, or you think you see now. We think we see now. Um, I think at that age, I was just going off to uh, prep school. Um, and I, I'd been to a school <coughs> in a, a, a primary school, Church of England primary school called St. Matthias in the Warwick Road in London, um, which I have dreadful memories of. Um, I think I was very tentative at school. 
at home I was quite cocky and I had a lovely, lovely, have a lovely, lovely elder brother, Peter, who was very um, calm and considered and absolutely not a show-off. So I think I decided the way best to get on, certainly with my stepfather, was to play to the gallery. And so I became the kind of the show-off of the family. I like making people laugh. And I seem to be able to do that. Um, sometimes I had to say, rather regretfully, at my elder brother's expense. But then, when I got to school, I found that didn't really work. And um, teachers I didn't get on with because I wasn't very successful in the classroom. So I'd do lots of detentions and have lots of punishments. And I began, something that went on right the way through my school life, I began to be quite frightened. Um, and developed quite early on, seven or eight, something like that, a stutter. Because they made you in those days, many of you will remember, stand up and recite poetry or something. Um, actually, we're all being rather encouraged to do that again now, aren't we? Um, <laughs> but then it, it seemed to me that it was this, if you didn't do it right and you hadn't learnt it, there were, there were punishments and staying in and detentions and writing things out. And everything, there was a lot of fear about. And I didn't respond to that at all well. And then I think what I developed was a way of being at school, just getting through school and getting out the other end and stuttering and stammering my way through things and just about clinging on and then going home and being cocky all over again. And I, I think at that stage, um, yeah, I, I sort of found another self that worked in different places. I mean, I'm thinking back to it now. Um, at the time, of course, I was unaware of this. I seemed to sort of slip from one into the other quite easily. But those people who've met me since. And occasionally I bump it. It's rather nice. You come and talk to people. And uh, I mean, I had a wonderful thing that happened. This was in Edinburgh, actually. It was about two or three years ago. I'd done a talk. A man came up to me. And he was about, I don't know, he looked very, very nearly 90. And he said, um, my wife was your first teacher in a church hall uh, down Phil Beach Gardens in London. And she, it was her very first job. And you were a little thingy of about three or four. And she had 25 of you to look after. And he said, um, she didn't know what to do. So she asked a friend of hers, what do I do with 25 or 30 little thingies like that? How do I control them? And so the teacher said, well, this teacher friend of hers said, it's very, very simple. Um, what you do is you cut out islands of lino of different colors. And you put these islands on the floor. And every child's got their own island. And when things are getting out of control, you go, Children, go to your islands. <laughs> and this man tells me this story in Edinburgh all these years later about how a teacher, how I was treated by a teacher in this little, I have no memory of it at all. But that was the kind of teaching I think I would have responded to because I believe in islands of lino. And when I went to my, pri my, my primary school, it was sitting in desks and copying things out and tests, 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 and failure, failure, failure. And I, th I didn't become a nervous wreck, but I certainly just wanted to get home where I could bubble away and tease my brother. But you've found a way, even at prep school, of overcoming this by being a great sporting hero. And amongst uh, Michael's amazing school reports, which would be uh, filled with encouragement for anyone who's struggling at school, um, was my favourite one was one at the very end. In fact, I think it was a comment in, in the final school magazine, his leaving summer term, which said, uh, Morpurgo may never be bookish, but he has a great rugger future. <laughs> um, it never happened. It never happened. Not yet. <laughs> I could have been a contender. And then at, at your public school, at secondary school, this great uh, heroism on the sporting field took a slightly different turn and you set your heart on going into the army and being a great heroic soldier. Is that right? Well, I think I turned in by this time into a sort of I don't know, Rupert Brooke romantic, really. I. I had told you I'd had this example mm, of Without these. reading any poetry, we might just quickly add I knew Rupert Brooke. <laughs> I did know Rupert Brooke because my, my mother made sure that I did. She was passionate about Rupert Brooke. I still got the book that, of, of his poetry with his, a picture of him, which looks remarkably, and this is interesting, remarkably like my mm. Uncle Peter. Um, both very handsome, godlike men. And I think I had in my head, I, it's very difficult to 
work out why I did what I did. I think I wanted to, to do well at what I knew I could do well at. I knew I was the kind of person, for some reason or other, that people followed. Um, and I could get people to do roughly what I wanted to do. And even when I, even when I was sort of 10 or 11 at prep school, I, I could play games and get other people to play the sort of games that I wanted them to play. And it might, we might put in here, I mean, it's an extraordinary thing that Michael won a scholarship to King's School Canterbury, his, his secondary school, and they invented a new scholarship, which I think has never been given before or since, for leadership. For leadership. <laughs> yes, I mean, it was extraordinary. I think it was just a ruse for, to get my parents to pay less money. I don't know. But it ended up by, I ended up having a reputation for being a leader of men. So they're thinking about 16. But you know what schools were very often like then? I think what happened in middle-class English schools of that type is that you were very, very quickly typecast. There were those who are very bright. Right, they're going to Oxford and Cambridge. Not a problem. <laughs> That's it. If you're a failure, go to Edinburgh. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> He's writing it down. I don't believe this. It's, go it's going to be the independent tomorrow. I can't bear it. That's right. Anyway, uh, no, the, the, the truth is that those sort of people were the scholars, and they wore white surpluses on Sunday, and they were the, the creme de la creme. It was that sort of a school. And then there were um, the sort of second-ranked people who were going to be um, lawyers and doctors, but some, nonetheless academics as well. And then if you were seriously stupid, there was left the church and the army. <laughs> And I was seriously stupid at my studies. I mean, I got A-level, um, but I didn't study hard. I, 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 and, and in those days, you just passed or you didn't pass. That was it. I don't even know the grades of my A-levels. And I passed enough anyway to get into Sandhurst. And I went to Sandhurst for all sorts of reasons, but deep down there was a serious reason. I think I wanted to test myself against the example of these uncles I've been telling you about. They were all up there, and I think for people growing as I did post-war, and having quite a conventional background, I was testing myself against the example of the people I still most admired. And it was those sort of people. Um, and I didn't know what else to do. I liked sport. I looked amazing in a uniform. <laughs> and uh, Santa's uniform is pretty smart. And, um, you know, I thought, well, the girls will flock. And, you know, you, stupid things. Anyway. <laughs> I went into it, and what I discovered very, very quickly is that I was good at it. I could march up and down, and people did think I was all right at it. And then, unfortunately, I, as you know, I met my future wife, who wrecked everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you're very modest to say you just got into Sandhurst. In fact, Michael got the top scholarship into Sandhurst in his year. Uh, and he kept a diary at school while he was working towards this scholarship. And it's very fascinating. He was absolutely desperate for this scholarship and the diary takes the form of a daily prayer the diary is pretty much addressed to god at prep school michael had spent uh, a lot of time when he felt like being alone which he did quite often sitting in the chapel at prep school uh, at his public school i'll just read you the final entry where he gets into sandhurst he writes in this diary, praise be to God. Dear Lord, I shall try sincerely to show my infinite thanks by being a better Christian. What's happened to that faith, Michael, over the years? Oh, I don't know. That was, um, I think that faith was as romantic as, uh, as the uniform. I believed it deeply enough, that's for sure, because you do believe in those romances. I don't think it's faded. I think all that's happened is that I've become more questioning that I, I doubt now as much as I believe. So, but what I haven't done is lost that, uh, 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 that belief. It's obviously not as simple-minded because it can't be after 68-odd years. Uh, life teaches you things. But um, I still am very connected to that whole world. Um, my, I suppose my favorite music is Thomas Tallis or... Mozart's Mass or whatever, it, it's very, very connected. And my favorite architect, architecture is church architecture, so that that goes on. And I'm connected to my church and the little village I live in, in in Devon. I used to ring the bells there. Interestingly, I had a, that was a failure in life too. Um, when I first went to the village, I thought, well, I was, I, 
I love music, and particularly church music. And I used to sing in the choir at school, in the choral society, and I loved that, but I was never talented at it. And I thought, well, I'll go, when I moved to this village, I can, I can do music because I can ring the bells in the church. And again, they always put, I don't know if you know this, any of you ring bells, they put the one who hasn't got any sense of timing or anything on the tenor bell. That's the one that goes dong. And everything else goes round the dong, basically. Michael can do the dong. And so they put me on the tenor bell in the practice team. And I practiced in my church for five years on the second team. And come Sunday, I never, never got on the first team. So my, the history of my music, even connected with the church, is one of failure. Um, but I, um, I still am very connected to what, for instance, the church does locally in, in my village. It is the hub with the Methodist chapel and the, uh, the church. It's the hub of what happens in our tiny little community. I believe in that. I believe in that massively, that it's the medium through which people care for each other. And that's, to me, justification enough. Uh, but do I pray as often as I should? No, I don't think I do. But I do read books about it. Uh, and I think about it a lot. And I doubt about it a lot. I also hope about it a lot. And I think I'm right, correct me if I'm not, in saying that looking back over your life and all the extraordinary things that have happened, you do believe that as well as your own efforts, there has been a kind of, one might call it providence, fate, something more than you could have created just by your own efforts. Well, I believe that, but I also believe that, I, I think it was Nelson Mandela said, didn't he, that you um, get where you get largely because of the help of other people at important moments in your life. Someone has given you uh, a hand up or a hand out. And, and I, I think a combination of these things, of meeting those people in a way, that's fate. It's having a teacher at the right moment at the right time, or a friend at the right moment, or a, indeed a wife, whatever, who, what, whoever it is who's enabled you to, to move on and become what you are and fulfill yourself. You don't do that on your own. So it's either or both something up there, or it's it's that and the people around you who've, who've helped you. So it's a combination of Nelson Mandela and God. <laughs> They're pretty close to each other, so that's all right. So then you came quite quickly out of the army and into teaching for what I think you look back on as slightly kind of wilderness years. Yes, I was trying to find myself, really. I mean, I think I did go through a period of um, self-doubt, I mean, considerable self-doubt after I came out of the army, because that was what I'd had in my mind, and I'd had a, a major rethink, which had been, um, you know, St. Paul on the road to Damascus kind of moment, uh, which, 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 interestingly, took place uh, at Christmas time, roughly. We were out on exercise, um, where I was with a whole lot of friends, and they, they, they put you through a, th a three-day exercise at Sandhurst, or they used to, um, just at the end of your first term. And it was snowing. It was freezing, freezing cold. 1963, I think it was. I can't remember. Really cold and snowing. And we were in slit trenches. And there was a... It's an extraordinary vision, but it's a real vision of, of a no-man's land between us and the enemy. And the enemy, and I'm not making this up, were the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders. <laughs> And if I can promise you one thing, they did not like very English officer cadets. <laughs> and they were giving us the hardest time of our lives, sending nasty messages across no man's land about what they would do when they got to us in our slit trenches. So it wasn't very comfortable. But at the end of, the, uh, sort of the, this abuse going back and forth, and they were much better at the abuse than we were, we ended up just by hunkering down and remaining on sentry duty. And I remember the snow was coming down. And I suddenly thought to myself, and it was a moment, hang on, this is extraordinary, because this reminds me so hugely of Christmas 1914 and the trenches between uh, the Tommies and the Germans and how they had climbed out of their trenches and played a football match and shared their schnapps and their whiskey and their sausage and made a peace for a day. And it did occur to me that actually that was maybe the way I should be going. Plus, 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 I'd already met this girl, this... Claire, uh, who had asked me a direct question, why are you doing what you are doing? And I couldn't give a proper answer, particularly after that December. And uh, so in a way, a lot of self-doubt crept in. I didn't know what to do. I went to university at King's College London, 
where I got, I think, the worst degree you can get. Um, it was called a general degree. This is for people who have to spread their talent out very thinly between the various honors subjects. And even then, I got a third, um, which is why when Mr. Gove says that the only teachers we should have are those people who got firsts and upper seconds or something like that, and all people with third-class degrees should be banished to some sort of place where they're no use at all. Well, both Philip Pullman and myself got thirds. <laughs> Um, so I'm not going along with that. But, and I was an all right teacher. I did begin, to answer your question properly, to refine myself when I became a teacher, because I refined myself, I think, in a classroom in front of children. I found that I could, I think you know, the word inspire is too big, I could enthuse them with whatever it was that I was doing. And the one way I found that I could enthuse them most, engage them uh, more immediately, more deeply, was to read them a story. And in a way, that journey did take some time, and I did not enjoy staff from politics. I had lots of arguments with head teachers. Um, there was one head teacher who uh, wanted to sack me because I was so rebellious and difficult, and, um, which I was. Uh, but I did begin to find another kind of a self-confidence by being in front of a, of a classroom. And I think that taught me much more after about four or five years of teaching that this was the, what interested me. And by this time, I had children of my own. And to some extent, children were becoming part of my life rather than, if you like, a career of some sort elsewhere. But really, it took off for you when you decided to leave the classroom yeah. and start Farms for City Children. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about how that No, I'd be pleased happened. to. Um, well, after years of, sort of, I wouldn't say failure, but stuttering through teaching and having difficult times in schools, but finding myself, as I said, in the classroom, my wife, Claire, had also um, gone to teach training college, and um, she's, she's the daughter of a, a great publisher called Alan Lane, who began Penguin Books, and he died in 1970. And he left a certain amount of money. And when you're left money, it's, it, it is difficult, because it puts you in a position, what do you do? Do you stick it in the bank and live off it, or do you put your money where your mouth is, where your heart is? And, and she's a Quaker by upbringing. She had had this most extraordinary childhood growing up, particularly in her holidays in Devon, of wandering the lanes and fields of Devon. And had a, her passion really was the countryside and what, how that had enriched her life. And I knew perfectly well from my classroom teaching that half of the children I was teaching, their lives were not going to be changed. I don't think this has changed, by the way, at all. Um, it simply depends on where you, what your mum and dad do and how they are as to how, how you grow up. And then school can, of course, help and they engage the children. But there were so many children who I knew were going to go into the system and out of the system, and they were hardly going to be affected by it. Their life chances were not going to be affected by it. I wasn't going to affect them. And we did some research and, and, and discovered, which I think what we knew already, but from universities, from people who know about these things, that the only way you can change your life early on is to enrich that life, to make a child feel useful, for their self-worth to grow, to feel engaged with a sense of belonging to the people around them, to the place around them. All this became, well, had become very clear to me, but it was reinforced by the academics that we asked. And so Claire and myself decided, OK, let's do it. Let's, let's put ourselves out on a limb. And we moved from Kent, where I was teaching, down to Devon, which is this place that she'd grown up in, right in the village that she'd loved so much, and uh, set up a charity, bought a large Victorian manor house, and really phoned up the Inner London Education Authority and said, here we are, we've got a farm, we've got animals, we've got a big house, we want your children. Um, well, the first year, nine schools came. Um, and we learned as we went on what it was that was really needed from the teacher's point of view and the children. And what it really needed more than anything else was this regularity, this expectation that they would do the work on the farm that needed doing within the bounds of safety. And so we worked out a daily routine, which began before breakfast, going to milk cows and feed calves and pick up the hen's eggs and let them out, and then going back for breakfast, going out on the farm, checking the sheep, doing the lambing in season, down to the milking parlor, scrubbing it out, all these things. But the day was busy, 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 busy. So at the end of a week, they were wiped out, <laughs> exhausted, the teachers as well. But they had had such an intense time. And during that time, they'd come across death, birth, extraordinary beauty. They'd seen buzzards mewing in the sky over the river Torridge. They'd seen salmon leaping. They might have caught a glimpse of an otter. They'd certainly seen an otter sprayed down by the river. That They were discovering. And if you, you know what children are like. They're sponges. If you can keep their eyes and hearts open, they're sponges. They were soaking it all in. And it was becoming part of them. And Ted Hughes, who became our great friend and a great patron of this uh, charity, said that that week would mean more to them than any, 
any year in their school life because of what they were simply drinking into this world. And that would become part of them. And they could relate then to the countryside, what it was for, and the fact that it was theirs. You know, it was, wasn't just for other people. So yes, we became very passionate about it. And, um, and we, there are now three farms. One in uh, Wales, in uh, Treguinis, just outside St. David's, by the Sea and National Trust place, which the charity took over. Uh, Claire did the fundraising by this time. She's raised li literally millions of pounds doing it over these 35 years. Um, for 25 years, I was very hands-on with the children, changing really from a classroom to the farm, um, using what I could of my leadership skills <laughs> to persuade them that mucking out a cow's um, barn uh, was really interesting. Uh, <laughs> that tests a fellow, I can tell you. Anyway, it was, it was true, because it really it was all about motivation and about standing there at the end and saying, look what we have done. And then you drive the calves back in and you see them leaping around in the fresh straw they've put down and the clean floor they've made. And you can see that inside themselves they all felt, yeah, 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 I can do this. And particularly for those children who were not succeeding at school and were not getting anywhere, this was the first moment of that glow of, you know, I'm, yeah, I've done this. And there'd be big farmers there who they work with who say, yeah, well done, well done, well done. And they felt good about it. And that, that was very important. So that's what we do. And I think something like, I, I, the numbers I'm fuzzy about, but I think it's something like 100 120,000 children have now been through the three farms and, and on it goes. So during school term times, we're now so old and wrinkled that we don't actually go out and do the work anymore. But I still, as you can tell, promote it heavily uh, and try to raise funds for it. And so does Claire. So it goes on. Well, I was hoping we were going to have time for a story from about the farm. But I think, in fact, if we want to have time for proper questions, we... We've got to move on, because I do want to talk a bit okay. about Ted Hughes. Um, right. I know... She doesn't want me uh, to read. You can tell she doesn't want me to read. Well, you can, all, you can read the story. No, it's the book. fine. That's the book. Um, uh, you, you found that you used to go and read to the children in the evening, yes. but also watching them and work, listening to them and working with them fed your own stories yep. constantly, and you began to write more yep. and more. Yep. Yep. Well, I think what happened was that I also, in this other part of my life, the story-making part of life, I found something to write about. Um, I'd started writing in Kent before we moved, but they tended to be stories um, very often about uh, children uh, at the school I was teaching or my own children, quite domestic stories, quite limited stories, quite, quite fun, quite sweet, not terrible, but not brilliant. Um, nothing that Roald Dahl needed to worry about. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I discovered, I suppose, this mission, this business of uh, getting children into the countryside. And so a lot of my stories then became connected to that and connected to the place in which I grew up. And it's from that place, from Idisley, where I moved, that I first met this old soldier in the pub who had been to the First World War with horses and started telling me about his experiences of the First World War. And it, in a way, and I went back to that village for a book called Private Peaceful, which I wrote later about um, you two young farm lads growing up in that village prior to the First World War, and then one of them ending up being one of those 300 shot for cowardice. Uh, and so repeatedly, repeatedly, that village has become the center of my stories. And so the stories became more than just telling a tale, because that's interesting, and that's what you do for children. They became stories I really meant. And one of the things I tell children about a lot, and I did when I used to go and read to them uh, on Thursday evenings, the night before they went back in front of the fire, I would test out my stories. I'd read them a chapter. And they'd ask questions about it. And very often they'd ask about, well, you know, I'd like to write, what do you, you know, how do you do it? How do you do it? And the, and the answer really is you just have to mean it. And it had taken me 10 years of writing to discover that. You just have to mean it. And if you mean it, other people are very likely to believe it. Um, and but it was a struggle, wasn't it? Reading through your letters from publishers, it yeah. was a slow, slow thing becoming first a published writer and then a sort yeah. of recognised published writer. Yeah. And I think that um, possibly your friendship with Ted Hughes was mm. absolutely central in keeping you Ted going, Hughes and, and be... also Sean Rafferty, who lived down the road. is an old poet, of, uh, one Scottish poet. He grew up and went to a fine university in Edinburgh. Uh, <laughs> right. Sean Rafferty and Ted Hughes between them, uh, they were wonderful, really. They, they were both of them great, great poets. One, of course, much, much better known than the other. Uh, but uh, Sean Rafferty wrote the most sublime, lyrical uh, Scottish ballads and um, was a truly great poet, but hardly known. And, of course, Ted was, Hughes was already massive. 
So these two, we would go to uh, dinners with them and our, very, our various wives, and we'd talk and we'd talk. And sitting at the feet of people like this, metaphorically speaking, you gleaned what literature was all about. And that's what they talked. They, they simply talked um, Auden or Eliot or whatever, and they'd do it with such wonderful insight and passion. And then they would go back, and I know they'd be writing. And it was wonderful for a, a younger writer to have that. And Ted Hughes would show me his manuscripts and say, well, here you are, what do you think? Well, what do you say? You know? <laughs> and so I would bat a manuscript back to him. And bit by bit by bit, um, we, we kind of engaged in each other's literary worlds. I was always an outsider to some extent, because poetry isn't my thing. But children's literature was his. That's the point. He had written great, great children's books, The Iron Man and The Iron Woman, and wonderful poetry. And so we had something very much in common. And when it came to trying to lift the whole idea of children's literature, because um, very often it's like everything to do with children. It's always sort of put to one side, you know? I mean, you know, let's think about it just for a moment. The worst paid teachers are those who teach the littlest children. The highest paid teachers are those who teach the children who are closer to being adults. And so it goes on right the way through. And if you're a children's writer, it, you were kind of put to one side, very nice, but the back of the shop, please, uh, and don't make a noise with those children. And um, it was a bit like that. And then all sorts of interesting things happened. Of course, there was um, a minor Edinburgh writer called J.K. Rowling who came along um, <laughs> and, and, and blasted the universe. But alongside that, we had already set up this children's laureate thing, which was very much Ted Hughes's and my initiative, to, because he was Poet Laureate at the time. And I knew how important that was for poetry, to have someone up there who was your poet for the moment. Uh, not just to write poems about royal weddings, but somehow to speak about poetry, to enable young people to come to poetry. And Ted Hughes was brilliant at that. He was a great inspirer of young writers. And so I said to him one evening, well, we could have a children's laureate. Wouldn't that be great? And he said, very surprisingly, yes. <laughs> will make a list. And he made a list of all the people he thought you should write to. Tim Waterston, the Queen, the Prime Minister. All these poet laureates can write to those people. I couldn't. Anyway, he wrote to all these people, and the responses came back overwhelmingly. Yes, 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 yes. Sadly, sadly, Ted was ill already and uh, died a year later. And very, very shortly after his death, the first children's laureate, Quentin Blake, was appointed. And it's one of those initiatives which seems also to have inspired uh, more children and more writers and has lifted, I think, the spirit of, of, of people in children's literature. So that we owe hugely to Ted. He was a great man and um, not generally known for that side of his work. He really was a wonderful inspirer of young writers, this young writer. I was a young writer once. <laughs> Well, I think we want, we want to make sure we've got some time for questions. So can we just end my questions, Michael, by my asking you about your dreams for the future? And I know one of those, I think, involves Scotland. Oh, Maggie, for goodness sake. Oh. Um, oh, all, be... all I let slip. No, you may be thinking of a different thing. No, oh, no, what? <laughs> oh, there are two dreams in Scotland. One specific children. <laughs> She's right, there are two Scottish dreams. Uh, yes. I, I'm very glad we've identified which dream it is. Um, I'll, I'll tell anyone the second uh, one. There was and is still a hope that what we would love to do is to set up another farm for city children. We have these three. But we have nothing that is close to the Scottish borders. And it would be the most wonderful thing to have a place... Um, where kids from north of the border and south of the border could come uh, to a farm. I don't really mind on which side of the border it is, because the land is wonderful on either side. But it would, that would be, I think it's our dream, to set up a place in, in the north, because we're very much a southern England thing at the moment. It's Wales, southern England. It's Wales, um, it's uh, the west country, uh, and near Bristol. So, so we're very concentrated in the south. And we would, so if any of you have this uncle who has an estate in Aberdeenshire uh, of a thousand acres and simply doesn't know what to do with it. It's got a great mansion. Um, then would you please let me know afterwards? Thank you for that, Maggie. And if you write to me privately, I'll tell you what the second Scottish dream is. <laughs> but I think we should now have questions. Yeah. I think Lindsay is going to sort of point out who's allowed a question 
who isn't, who's paid and who hasn't. <laughs> I listened with great interest to your Dimbleby lecture some time ago when you spoke how important it is to um, keep an eye on early education. And I, it's something I'm very fearful about at the moment because I think nursery education is an easy budget cut target for local, local authorities. And I just wonder, what can we do to stress the importance of that area for, for all of us, really, because we're all going to grow up eventually. But that is the sort of ground for every person. It's really, it's hard because it, we are banging our head, I think, against a brick wall just at the moment on nursery education and on libraries, all these things which are critical to a child's beginnings. Um, well, what can we do? You can speak like you've just spoken. I can give Dimbleby lectures. Um, and I can lobby people, which I do a lot, a lot, a lot. But it is hard because there's still this pervading nonsense that we have that education for the very young is not nearly as important as later on when you can judge it by testing. And even now in England, I'm not sure what they're doing in Scotland, they're going to be bringing in a test. In fact, they've started this June bringing in a test for learning about words, synthetic phonics because they think this is, you know, the way forward. But you've got to test them on it. That's what's important. And the misunderstanding is huge still, because it's still seen as results, and it's not seen as the whole child. And what you know and I know, we're talking about nursery education, it is the whole child. It's, it's giving that child an early experience, enriching experience of learning and playing, which is not tested but which from the roots, the shoots can grow. Um, the shoots that are all about being at a place where there are caring people around you, where you have fun, and yes, where you can begin to learn. But it's not about the imposition of systems and regimes. So, yeah, you go on asking difficult questions. I will go on doing lectures and we'll get there. We have to believe we can get there. And the truth is, you have to take a long perspective. If you go back to my childhood, when we were sitting on our islands. It was about control more than anything else. I think we have moved on. My uncle Francis, who I told you about, who was a great educationist, um, who was head of Roll College down in Devon for many, many years, which specialized in teachers from, uh, of, of the very young. And he, he because I would moan a lot about, I don't know, educational authorities and government when I was running this project. And he would say, you mustn't do that, Michael. We have moved on in huge strides in 50 years. The problem is, that it's so easy to go back to where we first started, to that culture of, it's called excellence these days. And what it tends to come down to is excellence for the few. And the people still at the bottom of the pile are not being enabled to reach for this excellence. That's what we have to get right, it seems to me. So yeah, your paper, thank you for your question. Did you mean me? Go for yes. yes. Hello, my name is Christine Richard. I want to uh, totally confirm what the ladies there were saying about early education. I recently ran a childcare organisation looking after 200 families in Wester Hills, which is one of the, has traditionally been one of the poorer areas of Edinburgh. And when I took over, I it was like Sisyphus because I wanted the children to read books, I wanted them to eat with knives and forks, I wanted them to be imaginative, and at the end of our first year, we had a graduation for those going to primary school. They wanted to be pirates, we built a pirate ship, and they dressed up as pirates, even I dressed up as a pirate, and they had to walk the plank, and I'm at the bottom of the plank, and they get their graduation certificate. That was the first thing. How far did they have to fall off the plank? <laughs> I mean, this is serious it child was, abuse, isn't it? I yes, mean, absolutely. Unbelievable. And you make them, I'll go down to England. I said, do you know what in Scotland they make them walk the plank? Yeah. And do you know, Michael, actually, I think I probably, is anyone here from Oscar, broke the odd rule by kissing a child better when it fell over and 
cut itself. And How dare you? I know. But, but the real question I want to ask you is, in this wired world in which we live, in which conventional publishing is drifting quite quickly now, not just drifting towards the rocks, um, children in particular, but adults only, are not reading, certainly not reading books in the same way that we have been used to. And do you see this trend continuing? I mean, I'm quite happy to have my work on Kindle and downloaded and so on. Hmm. But there's an increasing difficulty for new authors. There's an increasing difficulty in the getting people feeling a book, turning the pages, etc. Yeah, yeah. So where is publishing going? Small bookshops are closing. Yeah. What are we going to do about it, if well, anything? Well, um, I don't take quite such a, a gloomy view, I have to say. I understand everything you're saying, um, and we're at a time of great difficulty for, yes, for publishers, for bookshops. But I have a feeling, let's just take bookshops. At the moment, it seems to be almost the only sector that is doing really rather well are the independent bookshops. Uh, I think people are refinding the notion of a small shop is really rather good, where they know the books. So that, I'm not knocking that in the head, but I'm saying that's not as bad. As it, when it comes to reading... I think the truth is that those people who are reading are reading more and more and more and more widely, and they're reading in, on Kindle, they're reading in page books. Uh, and it's, to me, I don't care how they read their stories, how they get their stories, so long as they get their stories. I, I know that all the way through, from before Caxton's time, we have changed how we access stories. Um, and I know people, when paperbacks came in, I know this from my wife's story, that everyone who published hardback books, it's the end of hardback books, there won't be any more hardback books at all. Of course, what actually happened was that hardback books had to adjust, and more paperback books come. The thing that's really wonderful is that at each time, it spreads the appeal of the story or the poem or the book. And that is brilliant. If you think what has happened from, yes, Caxton, to um, Penguin Books, to the BBC, to all this spread of knowledge and understanding. It is wonderful what has happened. We, we, we shouldn't despair, I think, of this new technology which seems overwhelming. It isn't overwhelming. Everyone has to adjust to it. Um, that's my view, but I'm trying to be desperately modern here. <laughs> Every single time you hand that microphone over, um, she goes, oh, I didn't mean that person. <laughs> but you'll do fine, madam. It's fine. Well, I'm very... Can you hear? Yes, yes, you're brilliant. I'm very pleased to have the microphone in my hand. I have absolutely been delighted to hear your story this morning. But what I like, would like, and I'm sure many people here would actually like not to have any more questions, but to hear you read some story. Mm -hmm. Well, how much time have we got? The thing is, it's. There is, there that's is something lovely. even better than a story coming. I can't read you a story because I've got four minutes and I don't write stories that short. <laughs> um, I really should. But what I will do when this is finished, I tell you what I'm going to do, is um, something I, I love doing. I'm going to sing you a song, <laughs> which is much, much better than any story. A child. There's a young person there, looks extremely small. Could you get the, that? Wonderful. How nice that you're here. And how nice that you've dared to ask a question. Could you stand up so that people can believe you? <laughs> Thank you. Microphone really close to the mouth, that's it. Uh, my name is Olivia, and I want, um, out of all the books that I've uh, read of yours, I wanted to ask why you always include an animal in your story. Do you have a connection of some sort? Um, I don't always have animals in my stories. <laughs> but I understand what you say. They are frequently there, aren't they? Yeah. Um, there's always a, a really good reason. Um, and it's different each time. I'm not particularly fond of animals. I'd love to say that, you know, I'm a sort of a, a Dr. Doolittle. Uh, or a David Attenborough, I'm not. I tell you what interests me hugely, and that is the relationship between animals and ourselves. 
Why do I write about that? Because I've been in this privileged position for many, many years now of watching young people working with animals, grooming horses, milking cows, moving 300 sheep, understanding their relationship to those our fellow sentient creatures, their fellow feeling creatures, that they have fears, they have anxieties, just like we have. And what I found with young people your age, Olivia, is that young people seem to have an affinity, a relationship, a close relationship with animals that is natural. I don't know why that should be, unless we are, if you like, all made from the same being, you know? We are connected somehow. I am connected to an elephant. <laughs> and not only through Rudyard Kipling. It's simply that when I look into an elephant's eye, and I urge you next time you go close to an elephant, look into an elephant's eye, and what you're going to see is the same as that elephant is seeing looking into your eye. It, there is an intelligence that we don't understand, a being that we don't truly understand. And I think this mutual fascination and the fact that we've lived alongside them, and I'm afraid sometimes exploited them, extinguished them, is both interesting and tragic. And for instance, with War Horse, it is all about the connection between that horse and the people around that horse. Uh, that is so important. The trust, the confidence that it builds from the animal side and from the child's side or the soldier side in the case of the First World War. So that's the answer to your question. It isn't the animals themselves. Maybe it should be, but for me it's the relationship between you, Olivia, and an elephant. <laughs> Are we finished with questions now? It's song time. Um, is anyone here... Um, is that right, Maggie, if I sing a song? Because she's the boss today. Um, has anyone here been to see the uh, play of War Horse? Hands up, hands up. Stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up. Stand up so everyone can see you. Look at this. Give him a clap, please. <laughs> sit down, sit down, sit down. Well, those of you who have been to that, you will, you will recognise this song that I'm singing, because it's from this show, but it's particularly important to me, this song, which was written by a wonderful man called John Tams, who's a great, great folk singer. Uh, and it's the song which is at the heart of this show, which, to some extent has changed um, my life, but it's also a song which I think will resonate the words. My singing may not, but the words will resonate, uh, I think, with, with many people here. I, I, I do hope so. So I'll sing it sitting down because um, I don't want to do that business. I mean, that awful ceremony in London at the end when all those people got up and started singing, standing around in cars and things like that. I'm not going to... I'm, not, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna sit down and simply... Um, and here's the, here's the song. I do I need that? I no. I, fine, here we go. Um, it's called Only Remembered. And those of you who've seen the show will know exactly what I'm going to sing. Fading away like the stars in the morning, losing their light in the glorious sun. Thus would we pass from this earth and it's toiling, only remembered for what we have done. Only remembered, only remembered, only remembered for what we have done. Thus would we pass from this earth and its toiling. Only remembered for what we have done. Only the truth that in life we have spoken. Only the seeds that in life we have sown. These shall pass onwards when we are forgotten. Only remembered for what we have done. Only remembered, only remembered, only remembered for what we have done. Thus would we pass from this earth 
and its toiling, only remembered for what we have done. Who'll sing the anthem, and who'll tell the story? Will the line hold? Will it scatter and run? Shall we at last be united in glory, only remembered for what we have done? Only remembered, only remembered, only remembered for what we have done. Thus would we pass from this earth and its toiling, only remembered for what we have done, only remembered for what we have done. More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.